I'll tell you, as I was thinking over the message that I was going to give you this morning, I was thinking about the summer after I graduated high school. This was 10 years now, over 10 years. The summer after I graduated high school, I went on a senior trip with one of my best friends to Florida. And I love the beach. I've always loved the beach. I've also had a very healthy fear of the ocean. Amen? <laughs> Listen, I love the beach, but I understand my capabilities when it comes to the ocean. I have never been face-to-face with a shark, but I have been face-to-face with a jellyfish. It's the same thing. <laughs> the, the same fear and terror I experienced, it's the same thing. And so I have a healthy fear of the ocean, to be honest with you. Me and my best friend, when we got to Florida, we had one goal on the trip. We got there, we walked out on the beach, we were excited to be graduating, and we looked out in the ocean and we saw the sandbar. And we looked at the sandbar for about five seconds. My friend looked at me, he said three words. All he said was, we have to. <laughs> And in this moment, I knew what was going to happen. Even though I didn't want to, I was terrified. I knew the only way I was going to be able to leave this senior trip is by going out to the sandbar. And for me, I remember standing there terrified to go that far into the ocean. And listen, I'm a decent swimmer. At University of Memphis, I took a swim class, and it was intermediate swim. (laughs) Not beginner swim. They offered that. But it was intermediate swim. And I finished second in the class, all right? Out of three of us. And uh, <laughs> there were a few more than that. It was about seven, to be honest. <laughs> Finished second in the class. I have, I'm a decent swimmer. It's not bad about it. But you know how it is when you're standing on the shore of the beach and you're looking out at the sandbar. From the, from the shore, from the beach, when you look at the sandbar, it's terrifying for two reasons. The first one is the sandbar looks like it's miles away. Let me be honest with you. It looks like you are going to swim for days. It looks miles away. And then when you're standing on the shore and you're looking at the sandbar, the, the ocean looks absolutely massive, right? All you see is just this entire ocean. And so venturing out there is terrifying to say the least. And so me and my buddy, what we do is we start swimming out there. We take a couple floats, right? We're not crazy. We're not gonna die here. I have arm floaties. We're going out to the sandbar and we're venturing our way out there. And I'm terrified, I'm exhausted, I'm scared to death. And we get to the sandbar, and I stand up, and it's that moment. I'll never forget this moment where I just go, right? Breath of fresh air. You breathe for a minute. And I turn around, and I, I look back at the shore, and I'll never forget it. Looking back at the shore and my fear and my terror going away immediately. And the reason why is so simple. It's not complex. It's very simple. But once I looked at the shore from the sandbar, it didn't look that far away. In fact, to be honest with you, The whole idea of venturing out into the ocean a little bit went away when I looked at the shore because it didn't seem as big as it was. See, what I learned in that moment is very simple, is that the distance between the shore and the sandbar never changed. What changed was my perspective. And that took my fear away. See, the distance, the reality of the situation that I was in did not change. My stance, my posture, where I was and how I viewed it changed the fear I had and gave me confidence within it. And here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Here's what I want to focus on. How you view the things you face in life matter. Your perspective matters. How you view the trial, the hardship, the tough time that you have before you plays a part in how you react to it and plays a part in your confidence. What I want to talk to you about this morning is how a lot of times when life breaks down, when life gets hard, we look at our crisis, we look at our hard time the same way we look at the sandbar from the ocean. When we look at our problem in this way with no faith and with no confidence and we're just stuck and we're not moving, 
we see two things. One, it looks like the solution to our problem is miles and miles away. Doesn't it? Have you ever been in a crisis and it looks like the solution couldn't be further away? You ever been there this morning? Amen? Far away. But not just that, though. When you're looking at your crisis, your hard time with no faith in the Lord, the problem looks massive. What I've learned in life that I'm still trying to practice every day is that when hard times hit, when life gets hard, if I will walk in faith, if I will move, if I will walk with the Lord through my trial, through my hard time, my perspective will change. And not just that, I will adopt the perspective that he has on that trial. And here's what happens. When you begin to walk with the Lord, when you walk with him through your trial, through your hard time, and he changes your perspective, you realize two things about the sandbar. You realize two things about your trial. You realize, number one, the solution really isn't miles away. In fact, the Lord is the solution within your trial, which means he is present. But not just that, you realize, too, when you compare your trial to the size of God, the trial doesn't look that much massive because God is a whole lot bigger. Even though your circumstance may not change, which you might not have any control over, I'll tell you this, your perspective on it can, which will change your confidence and ultimately change your faith. So let's dive into this. In John chapter 11, here's where we arrive in Jesus's ministry. This is a crucial, critical point in the life of Jesus. Halfway through the gospel of John, we are going to see a death occur that some of you are familiar with and some of you are not, the death of Lazarus. And this is gonna have a huge emotional impact on Mary and Martha in this account, in this story. And with this, we're gonna ask some hard questions about Jesus and about our faith. And the big question we're going to ask is, where is he when life breaks down? Where is God when things fall apart? Now, what I want to challenge you with is if you know the story of Lazarus, and you've known it for many, many years, I want to challenge you to look at it this morning through the lens of, which was me just a few years ago, as if you don't know the outcome of the story. I want us to look at Lazarus as if, from Mary and Martha's perspective, as if we don't know what's going to happen. Remember, when we read about Moses... It can be hard to sympathize with the insecurity he feels because we have the blessing of knowing that God's going to part the Red Sea. It's hard to sympathize with Joseph when he's in the pit because we know Genesis 50 verse 20, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. It's hard to sympathize with David sometimes when he's talking and pouring his heart out about the fear he's having because we know what happens when he faces Goliath. But you and I don't know the outcome of our life. So sometimes when we read scripture, we miss out on the glory of what we see God do because we already know what happens for them, but our faith cripples because we don't know what's going to happen for us. So as we look at this account, as we look at Mary and Martha, and as we look at this moment, I want us to look at it through the lens of that. And if you're taking notes, I hope that you are. You can write this down at the very top. The title this morning is The Power of Perspective. The Power of Perspective. A message I believe is so timely before we close out the year. The Power of Perspective. And if you will, we're going to be starting in John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through this verse by verse as we pick apart the narrative. So chapter 11, starting in verse 1, and then I'll give you the first hard question we're going to ask. It says this, Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death. 
but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We're going to come back to that. That's a key verse. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. When he heard, when Jesus heard that Lazarus, who he loves, was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again. Jesus responds, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. We just sang that. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way. Incredible words to hear from Jesus. Amen? I'm on my way to wake him up. How many of you know even greater than that? Jesus is on his way back to this earth. Amen? Even greater than that, Jesus is quite literally on his way. Then, verse 12, I love this. This is hilarious. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. <laughs> verse 13, Jesus, however, speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. I love, I love this verse right here. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. <laughs> Don't you love when Jesus gives a really, really incredible teaching moment? And the disciples are like, Jesus, that makes no sense. <laughs> And Jesus says, he's dead. <laughs> Jesus just comes back around and just clarifies, Lazarus has died. Now, verse 15 is a controversial verse when it comes to the character of Jesus. And it's controversial when you look at it without knowing the account of the story for the question we're about to ask, is God present to you when hard times hit? Look at this. Jesus says, I'm glad for you. Now, Lazarus has just died. Imagine you're in their position. You lose a loved one. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. How can Jesus say that? Here's what he says. So that you may believe. But let's go to him. Verse 16. Then Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let's go to so that we may die with him. I would love to pray for us this morning. Then I want to give you the first hard question we're going to ask. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, we ask that your word would not return void this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified. God, we pray that you would have every word to say. Lord, help us to understand clearly your word, your purpose, and your calling on our life. Lord, help us to leave today filled with your spirit, ready to go forward for what you have for us, God. And Lord, I pray for anybody in here that does not have a personal relationship with you, that they would repent of their sins and give their life to Jesus Christ today. Lord, we pray that you would move. We pray that we would not go through the motions, that we wouldn't play church, but that we would be here and hear your word and that it would change us from the inside out. So, Lord, we love you. If that's your prayer this morning, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Let me give you a hard question, number one, we're going to ask. Here it is. The first hard question we're going to ask about this text is, number one, is Jesus absent when hard times hit? Is Jesus absent when hard times hit? And I know in a room this big, I'm not the only one who has asked this question or pondered this about God when hard times hit. Now let's talk about Jesus' relationship here. To Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, remember, these are not strangers. Scripture makes it clear. The personal relationship that is had here, that Mary and Martha have always used their home to provide hospitality for Jesus and his disciples. But even more than that, talk about Lazarus for a minute. 
Lazarus is described as a wealthy man. And he used his wealth to further the ministry of Jesus, that he has investment here. He says that Lazarus is a man that loved Jesus, that lived with integrity, as many of us do here, that we live with integrity and we want to advance the gospel through whatever means we might have. So these three have a very close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. Scripture says clearly they love Jesus and Jesus loved them. That is stated to us for a fact. So when they see that Lazarus is sick, when a problem arises, when a crisis comes up, the very first thing they do, their first phone call is to Jesus Christ. The number one person, the number one call where they go is directly to Jesus Christ, which I would say shows their faith. They don't call a neighbor. They don't post it on social media. They go to the one who has the power. Their faith is on display here in this moment. Listen to me, church family. When your car breaks down and it's cold outside, cars are breaking down right now. When your car breaks down and you're on the side of the road, you don't call the pastor. (laughs) Because listen, I love you and Brother Steve loves you. We don't know anything about cars. (laughs) Laying of hands on your vehicle is nice, but that's not going to get the engine back going. You don't call a neighbor. Hopefully, to be honest with you, you're not calling a friend just to rant about how bad that car is. See, when you have your car break down, your number one call, the first person you go to is your mechanic that you trust, that you love. For me, it's my pops. Shout out my dad. Amen. If you need car work, let us know. We're here. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) I call my dad. Hannah's not the number one person I'm going to immediately to tell her about. I love her. Love her to death. She doesn't know anything about that engine. (laughs) I love her, but she doesn't. I'm calling my dad. Why? Because my dad has, watch this, the ability and the power to fix the problem that I'm in. A lot of us have a crisis situation arise, and we go to every single person in the world except the one who actually has the ability and the power to fix and help the situation that we are in. Sometimes we post it on social media before we go to the Lord when a crisis arrives. We're in the hospital taking a selfie, making sure people are aware, and we haven't even talked to the Lord. I'm telling you, we go to any and everybody except number one. So I want to ask you, as plainly as I can, when that hard time comes, whatever it is for you, I don't want to downplay it, whatever hard time, whatever trial, whatever battle you face, who is your number one call? Because whoever your number one call is, That's who you believe has the power. A really good mechanic, when it comes to your car, knows the problems your car has far better than you do. And I want to tell you, some of us in here need to realize that the God we serve knows our problems far better than we even do. I'll tell you this in Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, it says this about Jesus. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The reason you have breath and the reason you continue breathing is because of Christ Jesus. All things were made through him and for him. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, I love this. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Mary and Martha didn't call for the neighbors. They didn't post it on social media, which would be hilarious back in that day. Your mechanic may look at you 
And they may tell you, hey, that car that you're driving, it's time for a change. Some of us in here got a car that's 300,000 miles on it. We're still going. When you go to the Lord with that problem, that trial that you have, the Lord may be the one to look at you and say, hey, the reason you're in this hard time is because you need to turn back to me. It's time for a change. It's time for you to replace your faith in me and not all these other options that our culture and our world surround you with. I think one of the craziest parts of this text is that they call for Jesus, but it appears he doesn't answer. Like when you read this, when Mary and Martha are in this trial and they're losing a loved one, they call for Jesus and it looks like he doesn't answer. I'm sure, I can't imagine what they were thinking, but I can imagine something along the lines of, hey, we've seen Jesus heal strangers. I'm sure that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would jump, literally jump at the opportunity to heal someone he knows and loves personally, deeply. It's our brother, but Jesus doesn't. In fact, look, in verse four to six, again, it says this. In verse six, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And the reason why, what Jesus says in verse four, is that this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Church family, humanly speaking, this, this statement makes no sense. If he is not God, this statement makes no sense. For him to say, hey, I am not going because this sickness doesn't end in death, but it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God would be glorified through it. It appears that Jesus makes no move, watch this, to relieve their suffering. Yet, yet, some of you know this story even better than I do, and you've never focused on the fact that it appears he stays right where he is and he allows Lazarus to die. He allows this suffering to happen. Why? The question we have to ask is why. Remember, is Jesus absent in hard times? The battle you're in, the trial you're in, is he absent or is he present? Is he with you? Mary and Martha knew the area. I'll tell you this, they knew how long it would take to travel to Bethany from where he was, so they waited. But Jesus took two additional days. Can you imagine the time between Mary and Martha call for Jesus versus the time he shows up? How long that must have felt to wait? Ah, uh, some of us in this room know that feeling. Some of us in this room can relate to Mary and Martha because some of us in this room have had loved ones get sick. We've had family members get hurt. We've had trials and we've called out on God and we've asked before, why is God not appearing? They watched their brother grow weaker and weaker. They sat by his bedside and I imagine them checking to see if a group of 12 were making their way towards him and over and over they heard no and the weight had to be awful. Church family, this is what it is like for you and me when we pray to God for help and then have to wait for his answer. Don't tell me that you haven't been in that place before where you've asked the hard question, is God really hearing me? Let's tear down the facade. Let's, let's tear down the, the religious status and let's be honest and real. All of us in hard times have wrestled with why is my prayer not yet being answered? Let's be Real And what I want to put on the screen for you is this. What is your faith like in the time between the moment you ask God for help to the moment he does something and answers? Here's where we are in this room today. December 4th, 2022. With this question, we are one of three places. We are the person who is about to ask God for help today. 
We are the person who is in the waiting period looking for what God is going to do to respond or we are the person who has seen the answer and has seen the response from God. Where are you and what is your faith like during that waiting portion? Is it strong? Honestly, do you cling to the Lord? Do you hold to him? Do you trust in him? Do you not turn to anything else? Or when you, your immediate response from God is not what you're looking for, do you turn to whatever else in the world can be a quick fix, church family? I want to challenge you that in this crisis, Jesus is not absent. In your crisis, Jesus is not absent. Scripture says that Jesus is on his way. It's as true for them as it is for us on this planet today. Literally, Jesus is on his way. But even more than that, the answer to your prayer, the response to the hard time you're in, it might not be the one you want, but there is one coming from God. It is on the way. Would you trust in that? Would you cling to that? Would you hold to that? Will I? But Scripture tells us that God does not withhold good, that when we draw near to God, God draws near to us and that he hears our prayers, that he hears you and his response is coming. Jesus says, I am on my way. I'll even go back to what our pastor has preached on for weeks in regards to spiritual warfare, a sermon series that could not have been more timely. Every sermon, the Lord spoke through Brother Steve. And one of the things he talked about in that series that I will reiterate to you today is that one of the greatest lies the enemy loves to say to you is that God is not with you. One of the greatest attacks Satan launches is the trust that you can have in the presence of God. That's why when life breaks down, you start hearing those questions of, is God hearing me? Is God close? Why am I alone? Why is it just me walking through this? Church family, why do you think that David spent so much time pouring out his heart about his confidence in not his crisis being solved, but that God's presence was there. David utilized all of his time to pour out his heart that God's presence was the solution, not the crisis just ending, that he had the solution in the midst of his crisis, not just at the end of the crisis. Church family, you can find the solution you're looking for in the midst of your crisis. It's not just at the end. That's why David says in Psalm 84, 10 and 11, he says, better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I wonder if we were truly honest, would we say that? Better a day in the courts of Jesus than a thousand in Hawaii. <laughs> Even right now, it's just cold. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. And our culture will make those tents look very enticing, will they not? I work with college students. I see the temptations before them of how tempting the culture makes it appear to dwell with the world. Your children, your, your children that are coming up in this culture are facing temptations that are new and present every day coming from our culture. And one of them is that to dwell with the wicked is enticing and will provide what they are looking for, but it never will. David goes on to say, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Some of you would say, Daniel, Lazarus lived with integrity, and yet Jesus stayed more days, two more days, he died. Some of you may say, Daniel, my grandfather lived with integrity, and he died. 
Some of you say, I'm, I'm trying to live with integrity, yet I'm in a hard place. I'm struggling. I'm suffering. It's hard. We're going into Christmas, and I'm not really into Christmas spirit yet because I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I got this hanging over my head. I'm anxious, and I'm worried. And I'm fearful. Daniel, like I'm here at church, but I don't really know why I'm here because I don't know if the answer is in Christ. I'm looking for it everywhere else. Some of you are there right now. In fact, if we're honest, probably more than we would think. But I want to tell you that God is not absent from your life. Jesus is not absent from your trial. Jesus is right there with you. In fact, if you are a believer even greater than that, his spirit dwells within you. Moses would ask you, what's it like to have the spirit of God living inside of your body? That your comfort and your peace and your joy right now, today, can be found right in the presence of God Almighty. Not another person, not a spouse, not money, not a job, not a career, not accomplishments, not recognition, not social media, not even this building, as great as it is. You cannot find what Christ offers you in anything else. And once you find it in Christ, you won't want anything else. Jesus is on his way. His timing is perfect whether we understand it or not. Not only that, let's keep going. Let's see what happens in this. Verse 17, it says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, look at her response, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha misses it a little bit. She says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. (laughs) I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. (laughs) I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live today. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do I believe this? Do you believe this? You're here this morning. Do you believe this? Amen. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back, verse 28, and calling her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Even more raw of a response, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. In other words, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Question number two, very quickly. Does Jesus feel and care about your pain? Does Jesus feel and care about your pain? He's present. He's not absent. He's on his way. He shows up. Praise the Lord. But we have to ask the question, does Jesus care Does he feel the pain that we are going through? Because Mary and Martha have experienced emotional turmoil. Lazarus is dead. There is great tragedy. There is great crisis. There is great hurt, which is why I love scripture because God's word does not withhold the pain and suffering that humanity goes through. 
And all of us at one point have asked the question, where is Jesus? Where is God? When my grandfather passed away at 10 years old, I wrestled with it for years as to why my best friend had to be taken at such a young age, why I couldn't have him longer. I've wrestled with that. And you know what I believe in a room this big, especially that I am not the only one who has wrestled with hard questions about the suffering that we have gone through. Some of you are asking the question in your heart this holiday season, does God care about me? Does God care about me? Okay, if he's present, if he's real, if he's here, why do I hurt? Why do I suffer? And I want to tell you, he cares more about you than you could ever imagine. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, you know it. It's an incredibly encouraging verse. It says this, Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Aren't you grateful for that? Amen? Amen. We do not have a God that does not sympathize with us. Our high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And in fact, keep reading. Look in verse 33. Here's Jesus' reaction to this moment. Again, you're from Mary and Martha's perspective. You don't know what's going to happen. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. The Lord, they told him, come and see. In the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. I want to tell you, even though Jesus has such a greater purpose in mind than what is happening on this earth right now, even though he has a plan, even though he has talked about the glory that is to come and that something great is going to happen, don't miss this. He still weeps. He still mourns. The one who has the power and the one who has the foreknowledge, he still weeps and he still mourns. And this is so big for you to understand deeply in your heart about your Savior. And it is that Jesus's knowledge of the future did not keep him from sympathizing with their sorrow. Amen. Amen. Jesus's knowledge of the future did not keep him from sympathizing with their sorrow. God doesn't call, cause all of your suffering, but he uses all of your suffering. He doesn't cause all of it, but he will use all of it. At the end of Joseph's life, as we talked about a moment ago, his testimony is that what man meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the present result, which is the survival of many people. I heard a pastor once say, God will take your mess and turn it into a message. But not only that, the third question I want to ask you is this. Is Jesus' purpose worth your suffering? Is Jesus' purpose pain, the hurt that we experience in this world, is his purpose worth your suffering? Look with me at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead for four days. She basically says, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? Don't you love when Jesus gives a command and you follow up with, are you sure? Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they do the unthinkable. They remove the stone. Then Jesus raises his eyes. Again, you are Mary and Martha. Your perspective on this. You don't know what has yet to happen. Jesus raises his eyes and says this, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, there are people watching. How many of you know every time you go through a trial, people are watching? Every time you suffer loss, people are watching. Every time you go through any hardship in this life, people's eyes are on you. People are watching. After he said this, oh, verse 42, I know that you always hear me. I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine? From Mary and Martha's perspective, can you imagine? I believe in the resurrection on the last day. No, I am the resurrection. Watch. <laughs> Come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. And then the outcome, verse 45, therefore, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. And all God's people said, Amen. many of them believed. So is your suffering worth Jesus' purpose for it? I want to tell you this. Here is Jesus' greater purpose that he stated in verse 4. The first thing is this. A, for God to be glorified. That you have to understand. I don't know your trial, you do, and I'm not going to downplay it. But in your trial, in your hard time, whatever you're experiencing right now, here's Jesus's goal, that God would be glorified, which means to place, and however way you, you live your life, place Jesus where he is getting, watch this, the attention and the focus. On my iPhone, I have a wallpaper, and I love it because it's a picture of my boo, amen? It's me and my wife, and she is so pretty. And every time I look at it, I get to look at my wife, and she is so pretty, and everybody who looks at my phone gets to see a picture of my boo. I have made her the center of attention on my phone so that when you look, you see my boo, you see my wife. She is the attention. People are looking at her. That is what you see. To glorify something means to place the absolute most attention on it. So in your trial, is Jesus the absolute center of attention as you suffer? Because if he is, if he is getting the attention and the focus, then whatever suffering you're going through, you are suffering successfully. You are suffering in a way where Jesus is being glorified. I love this. Any pain you face for the gospel will always proclaim the gospel. Any pain you face for the gospel will always proclaim the gospel. But not only that, be God's kingdom to grow. Jesus says multiple times in this text, the reason this is happening, the reason hard times come, the reason suffering happens is that God's going to be glorified they're going to see him walk out of that tomb. But then be that people would believe that the Jews who are gathered here watching Mary and Martha go through this hard time, watching them still say, literally, remember, Lazarus died. Jesus didn't show up. When Jesus shows up, they both say, hey, if you had been here, he would have lived. Their faith still exists in who Jesus is. Their identity of Jesus had not changed because of this crisis. They both said, hey, I believe in the resurrection on the last day. If you had been here, you would have saved him. I know. And the Jews watch this and they get saved. And people watch you go through trials and they watch you go through battles. And as you cling to the Lord, you will see people get saved. I love this quote, and I believe it'll be on the screen. It says that nothing gets the attention of an unbeliever more than a believer who is suffering successfully. 
Nothing. And as somebody that was lost at 21 years old, when I saw a Christian suffer and hold to their faith, there was nothing more powerful to me. Nothing. At 21 years old, when I hated Christianity, to watch a Christian suffer and still cling to Jesus Christ had the absolute biggest impact on me. And so some of you would say, Daniel, would Jesus allow Mary and Martha to go through emotional turmoil so that lost people would be saved? Yes. Does that make him unloving? No. He is the most loving because God the Father allowed his son Jesus to be crucified on a cross, murdered, and through that unjustified murder, raising from the dead three days later, it's because of that suffering and that torment that you and I have the forgiveness of sins, the redemption for eternity. That's why we get to heaven is because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you and me. It was through great tragedy. It was through the worst event in human history of Jesus, the Son of God, perfect and sinless, not deserving it, dying, that God took the worst event and made it the best event because he freed humanity from the chains of sin for anyone who will repent and call out on the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know your trial. I don't know your hardship, but I do know this. Whatever you might be walking through, God will not waste it. He will use it. He is present. He is with you. He will be glorified. And he will hold on to you with his right hand. I heard a story one time of a pastor who was doing a revival at his church. They were doing a revival every night of the week, worshiping on Monday, worshiping on Tuesday, worshiping on Wednesday night. And he was married to a young wife, and they were about to have their first child. It's coming up on that time. And third night of the revival service, the pastor doesn't show up. One of his friends, one of the leaders is there in the crowd, steps up, kind of leads the night, you know, kind of prays through the night, talks through what they're going to be speaking on, talks through the guests that they had had that night, and kind of leads the night. At the end of the night, his friend, the leader who stepped up that night, sees the pastor, you can imagine it, sees the pastor right behind our cameras, right back here, sees the pastor slip in, sit on the back row. No contacts, hasn't talked to him, no idea why he's there. Service ends, the pastor who snuck in the back and missed the service comes up to his friend and says, hey, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you now. So they go to his office, they close the door, they sit down. It's just him and somebody, the pastor and somebody that he trusts and loves very much. And he says this, word for word. The pastor looks at his friend and says, I just found out that our child has Down syndrome. I haven't told my wife yet, and I don't know how I'm going to tell her. The friend in his office looks at the pastor and says this, friend, this is of the Lord. Then he opens to the Old Testament. This is a true story and reads this verse. Exodus chapter four, verse 11. And the Lord said to him, that being Moses, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The pastor, shaken, says, let me see that takes the Bible, reads it over and over. The leader looks at the pastor that he loves, his friend, and he says, you know the promise in Romans 8 that all things work together for good, including this child, for those who love the Lord. The pastor closes the Bible, goes outside, gets in his car, handshaking, turns on the key, drives to the hospital where his wife is. He goes inside the hospital 
doors. He goes up the elevator. He's walking through the hallways. He turns in that room. There's that long hallway before you see the bed. He's walking in. He's getting himself together. He walks through the hallway, and he sees his wife in the bed. He walks up to his young wife, who's pregnant with this child, and she, he sits down at the side of her bed and grabs her hand. This is what he says to his wife in this moment. Who has made the dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Darling, the Lord has blessed us with a child with Down syndrome. Now, the news of this swept through the hospital. Every hospital staff member was talking about this moment of this Christian family. In fact, what's crazy about the story is there was a woman who worked the hospital desk as an operator. She would handle the calls. And she hears about what they're walking through. Now, she's not a Christian in any way, shape, or form. In fact, she enjoys watching Christians' faith crumble, and they come back to reality, right? Like one of the things she looked for was for Christians' faith to, to crumble in the midst of suffering. So she hears about this. The pastor's wife goes to call her mom to tell her mom the news of the child with Down syndrome, and the woman, who was the operator, listens in. The wife calls her mom, tells her that they have been blessed with a child with Down syndrome. And as they have this conversation, there weren't tears or hysteria or a breakdown, just faith. The woman who listened in on the call was shocked. She started going around to everybody at the hospital, telling the staff members what she had just heard. And pretty soon, without the pastor knowing it, the entire hospital was talking about their child and their faith in Jesus. One of the reasons I love this story is the following Sunday, the pastor gets up in the pulpit to preach just like we are this morning. And in the crowd, he doesn't know this, in the crowd is the woman, the operator, who listened on the call that hates Christianity. She's sitting in the crowd. She wants to come hear what this is all about. So she comes to hear him preach. But not only that, what he doesn't know also is that there were 70 nurses and staff members from the hospital in the crowd that day. He preaches his sermon. At the end, he gives an invitation, just as we're about to today. He gives his invitation for anyone who would have a decision to give their life to Jesus. And at the end of the service, he has 30 church members come down to give their relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only reason they were there in the hospital is because they heard the faith of what this family was going through and they decided to go to church. One of the quotes I love about this, and it'll be on the screen, is this. Would God allow this child to be born with a health condition for the sake of 30 nurses? Absolutely. Just as he allowed a man to be born blind that his son might heal him. Just as he would allow Lazarus to die so that he might be raised. And most of all, just as he allowed his son to be murdered in order that many might receive eternal life. God allows suffering so that others might come to faith in his son. Church family, I'll tell you, there is power in perspective. How you view your life, how you view your trial matters. How you view the holiday season and the purpose of what we're all about to do matters. So whatever you're in today, my challenge to you is what is your perspective? Is it one of this earth or is it one that is greatly, greatly above that? 